Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week's podcast will be about Russia. But before we dive into the topic, we're going to take a step back and return to our very first podcast of the year, the top 10 foreign policy trends of 2023. We asked for your predictions, and I'm happy to share two of the most interesting ones we received with you today. We might come back for more with some later ones, but one comes from uh, our listener, Ralph Rudolph, who predicted that in the long term, Ukraine will become an EU member state shifting the balance of the block further east, the balance of power in the block further east. In this new EU, Germany will cooperate more strongly with Eastern European countries at the expense of the Franco-German engine. And another prediction from another part of the world comes from Guy Edwards, who predicts that in Brazil, Lula's attempts to reprioritise protecting the Amazon will lead to a surge in violent clashes and political instability across Brazilians' Amazonian states as well as tensions with Brazil's key trade and investment partners. So thanks a lot to all of you for sharing the predictions with us. As I said, we might have more later in the year, but now back to Russia. It's almost a year since Putin launched his brutal war of aggression against Ukraine. Russia has been completely transformed since then, and every day that the war goes on seems to take it deeper into its nationalist fever dream, with increasing repression domestically, more sabre-rattling abroad. And uh, to help us make sense of how we've come to where we are and how it fits into a bigger historical sweep, we are very lucky to have a long-standing observer of Uh, of Russia, who is living in Russia at the moment as the foreign affairs correspondent for uh, Die Zeit, the the big German newspaper. And he has been heading the Moscow office since 2021, but this is his third stint in Russia. And in fact, he's one of the very last German correspondents who are still reporting from Moscow since the start of the war in Ukraine. He has brought together a lot of his experiences during the war, together with those from earlier stints observing Russia at different stages of its historical development, but also as somebody who's worked on global geopolitics is able to put this into an even bigger frame and has just published a book in German. The English translation of the title is Revenge, How Putin Created the Most Threatening Regime in the World. And absolutely thrilled that he's going to talk to us about it and share some of the the arguments and lessons and stories from his book, but also to give us a sense of, of where Russia is at the moment and where it's going and how this fits into a longer term picture of, of Russia's development since the end of the Cold War. So in your book, Michel, Michel sorry, first of all, thank you very much for joining Well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So in your book, you describe meeting Putin for an interview when he very first became prime minister back in 1999. And a lot of the sounds coming out of Russia at that point were still very conciliatory towards the West. Do do you want to talk a bit about your first meeting with him? Yeah, it was actually an interview he granted us, uh, my newspaper, Die Zeit. 
And um, it was the first interview he granted to, to a European newspaper, a Western newspaper. And so we were very lucky, of course, and, and, and happy to, to, to see him, uh, who was at the time already waging war, his first war uh, in Chechnya. It was the second Chechen war. Uh, and uh, with the brutal invasion of Grozny and that, of course, uh, were the things we asked him about. But first, I should say that actually when we came into that room, we had to wait for a very short period of time, some five to seven minutes, which was very unusual for the later Putin, for whom you have to wait for five or seven hours or something. And we, there, there was a long table, a polished mahogany table, um, but we were sitting next to each other. So um, that was quite different from the times uh, we've seen lately. So, um, and the atmosphere, I must say, was quite friendly. He was very forthcoming and inviting, tried to engage us and explain his policies and uh, ready to answer to any question. Also, what he didn't do, what he always tended to do then later on, that he didn't pick up a pile of documents and before you ask me this, read that. You know, and tricks he played on his uh, interview uh, partners and journalists later on. So, in and in the interview, what was interesting was that he actually, yes, he tried to explain his policies and he signaled that he wanted to be part of the greater West, part of a partner in the fight against terrorism, partner in a new world order. Uh, so there was none of what we know of today, Putin of today, who is actually trying to topple the Western world order or the world order as it is, um, but actually rather trying to integrate his country and himself into that. So your book is, is called Revenge. It's one of the key themes of the book. Um, to what extent do you think the situation we're in at the moment is caused by a souring of that dream he had of being integrated. I mean, how, how much blame should accrue to, to Western countries for having mishandled Putin at that time when you first met him, when he certainly was seen in places, you know, as diverse as, as 10 Downing Street, where Blair kind of rushed to be one of the first people to meet him, but also in, in Washington as a as a kind of reforming leader who could be a partner for the West? Yes, the West chairs part of the blame. Um, I don't think, but but let me come to that uh, second later. I don't think it is the reason for the Putin and for Putin's actions today. But what actually the West clearly missed was in, in these years to reach out to him to integrate Russia in some way or the other. And by the way, uh, in Germany, Chancellor Schröder, who is uh, an outspoken friend of Russia and Putin, he also didn't manage to do that. And then, of course, it was the war uh, on Iraq uh, in which Tony Blair and, of course, George W. Bush were, were the leaders um, of this coalition of the willing. Uh, of course, this uh, was a trigger for Putin to think in, in different terms. And he expressed that later 
at the Munich Security Conference in 2007. But where did he turn? I don't think it was the Munich Security Conference. And this is what I believe is so important to understand about Russia. Putin doesn't act in reaction to the West. Putin acts because he thinks this or that is right and this suits him within Russia. So Russia is, this is my uh, hypothesis, such, uh, Russia is such a big country that it can decide on its foreign policy, not in reaction to others, but what Russia thinks is right for Russia in this point uh, at this point in time. So the turn in his policies where his uh, return into uh, the presidential office in 2011-12, when there was a huge wave of demonstrations and manifestations and people camping out in front of the Kremlin uh, demanding his resignation. And this came as a huge shock to him because he is seen like in the Arab, as in the Arab world, leaders were toppled by mass demonstrations and, and mass uprisings. And he thought, of course, this was all organized by the United States, which was uh, not, in fact, uh, but it were uh, Russians and the genuine uh, demands of Russians who didn't want to see him back in the presidential office um, after having been two terms already in office before. Since then, he tried to turn Russia into a different country. And this is what I call the revenge. He first took revenge on his own people, on, on the opposition. And this was actually a period of 10 years between uh, 2011 and two, uh, 2021. And it was then, after having achieved his internal goals, such as, for example, arresting Alexei Navalny and sending him to a forced labor camp, so that he can never, ever be an opposition politician again, um, that he then turned on the West. And uh, this is revenge part two. And it's, uh, it's a game which is going on since 2021, before the war on Ukraine started. A lot of people would say that maybe the turning point came a lot earlier than that with the colored revolutions and the sort of sense that a lot of the countries around Russia were slipping away. He blamed the West and various conspiracy theories for, for the democratic uprisings we saw in those places. The the war in Georgia obviously happened, um, you know, in 2008 as a uh, as a kind of response to to um, the way that a lot of these countries were gravitating uh, towards the West, and after uh, the Bucharest summit where. NATO talked about giving a membership perspective uh, to these former Soviet republics. Um, but you think that that, that was uh, less significant in terms of his mental state than um, the domestic protests that took place on the streets of Moscow? And other yes, I, I, I think this is, of course, all part of what uh, unsettled him uh, at the time. And of course, when he saw people um, camping out in front of the Kremlin or on the other side of the uh, Kremlin, of 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 uh, the uh, of the river and the canal in front of the camp Kremlin, this reminded him very much, of course, of what happened not only in in Egypt, which were the latest events, or in Tunis, but of course what uh, of what happened in in Kiev uh, in two thousand and four. 
But um, these kind of colored revolutions, um, Russia pretty much had them under control. And uh, in 2011, when he returned to office in Ukraine, there was uh, they they had turned the clock again backwards with uh, the installation of uh, President Yanukovych. Um, so uh, things were and 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 of course um, by the in intervention or after the intervention in Georgia also Georgia was more or less under control, kept in check. Um, so, but I think it was exactly this repetition of events within Russia threatening his own popularity and then and not only his popularity but his position his undisputed position as the czarist like leader of Russia um, notably his um, popularity plummeted in 2011 and it was below 50 and everybody asked so what is actually his mission now what is he up to and I think that was the moment when in 2011, 12, he chose nationalism as a new ideology, an ideology which he had maybe played around with a bit before, but it was in 2012 that he declared himself a nationalist in a long programmatic article in Nezavisimaya Gazeta, the independent newspaper in 2012. And uh, since then, the uh, rollback in Russia started. So another big theme in your book is is the role of history and Putin's role models from Russian history. We were just talking about czars earlier on. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. <clears throat> Actually, we may sometimes wonder with whom who are his main counsellors, with whom is he exchanging uh opinions about what to do next and what steps to take. And I think the most accurate picture is probably when we see him on these TV pictures in a small chapel, when he is talking to only to God. Um, and I think there is no major advisor, there is no vice president, and there is no uh, not any politician in um, in Russia today whom he takes seriously enough to really have an exchange among equals. Um, and he looks back in history, and this is what he might do in the chapel also, that he turns to Peter the Great or Catherine the Great or asks Stalin for his advice. So this is basically his Champions League uh, in which he thinks he's playing. And this is, of course, also what he aspires to, to as his historical legacy, um, to achieve something uh, like Stalin did or like Peter the Great, who vastly expanded Russia's territory. And uh, he has done so with the, um, with the conquest of Crimea in 2014. And now he tries to add uh, most of Ukraine to that. Um, but um, of, of course, this attempt has, has met fierce resistance. Uh, so this is something unexpected. And this is why then again, he has probably consulted Stalin what to do and now is declaring a new patriotic war. Pa the great patriotic war um, to liberate Ukraine from the fascists at the, as the Red Army has done in the Second World War. 
uh, from the German fascists. Yeah. So you've been quite critical of the Putin regime for for a long time now, but many people in your country, in Germany, have been less critical over the years. There's been a kind of slow uh, process of re of historical reassessment, I think, in terms of Germany's relationship with with Russia, which uh, took on a new form with the Zeitenwende. <laughs> Um, which was declared after the full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine in February last year. Um, how do you see the, the German debate on Russia at the moment? We just had a very active episode around the leopard tanks. There's a, a lot of kind of Sturm und Drang about uh, exactly what role your chancellor is, is playing uh, on the Ukraine file. But how would you characterize where we're at now in terms of how Germans think about Russia? Well, I think we are trying to come to terms with what Zeitenwende really means. Uh, it is not just about fulfilling the uh, promises of the NATO summit in Wales in 2014 that Germany will spend uh, 2% of uh, GDP for uh, defense. But I think it is a whole different thinking about security, about how Germany should act and perform in the world. And of course, it requires not only that we expand our defense budget and then forget about it again, but it is much more about taking not only the political elite, but the whole population to take them along and tell them we are in an entirely different situation here because this is not only a war, this is not only about Ukraine and Putin taking back some old Soviet territory, but this is an assault on uh, European security and that is actually, we are meant by, by this war and this is what's being what I can hear in, in uh, Russia every day that, yes, we are waging a war from the West. And actually, I heard that from day one. Um, and uh, not only when, when the Russian troops started to meet resistance in Ukraine. So what I think this requires in Germany is, is, a, is basically saying farewell to the post-Cold War years where we could think about ourselves in an entirely safe environment, um, we are not safe anymore. And things have become, in, in Europe, and the security architecture is, is, uh, is in a shift. And we don't know where this shift ends. Um, so, and, and this is why not only the German government, but I think also um, the German public has to think otherwise about Putin, about his regime and about Russia. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why I wrote this book, to um, basically raise the level of awareness. And, you know, you're sitting like, you know, we all are living in Russia's world now. Um, it's become an inevitable part of our lives from the from our gas bills to the kind of fears of security that that you're talking about to this kind of big quite comprehensive reassessment that we're having to make of our own security to be sitting in moscow and talking to ordinary russians seeing the official propaganda that's coming out during the war on the russian side how, how do you see 
what are the stories about Russia that that we're that we in the West are, are not kind of experiencing and and thinking? What kind of country is Russia turning into? Let me start with my friends, who most of them share basically more or less uh, my views, and I share their views, and we've been talking since many years, if not decades, about the same things. So uh, with them, it's pretty easy, but we, we, we are returning to the where good old times or bad old times in the Soviet Union. When I was a student uh, in, in, in Moscow in the late 80s, and we met in the kitchen and, and, and then talked in the kitchen, and of course, there was no mobile phone to eavesdrop on us. Um, and and we are aware that yes we are being listened to uh, but nevertheless and then we we put our cell phones in a different room and and just talk and share uh, the grief and 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 actually the 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 sorrow about where russia is moving but then there are others i meet uh people i talk to and who are strongly supporting the operation um, and basically telling me that, yes, Mariupol was destroyed by the fascists and uh, the Dnipro bombing, so the latest, uh, Dnipro, the, 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 the big house in, in Dnipro, which was destroyed entirely, um, the, the fascists did that. So um, every attack of Russia and every atrocity, of course, was perpetrate, perpetrated by the fascists, the Ukrainian fascists. So it's very difficult to discuss these things, but uh, you you learn a lot about an entirely closed um, Weltanschauung, an entirely uh, closed view of the world in, in, in which actually uh, Russia is fighting a new grand, great patriotic war against the West, in which the country is alone, as it was in the Second World War. Um, this is uh, the lesson we hear today from this, uh, the, the Russian state channels as we are approaching uh, in these days um, where uh, Russia is also commemorating the Battle of Stalingrad. This fits very well into the picture. Um, that Russia is fighting this war alone. And this is what these people tell me who support the war. You are against us. Uh, we will prevail and um, we will never forget. And what do you, you know, looking forwards, what sort of scenarios do you think people should think about for the future development of, of Russia? Do you think that, um, you know, as this war drags on, do you think that Putin might end up losing power? Do you think he might use nuclear weapons because he's terrified of losing power? Do you um, think that the Soviet that, that Russia could break up in the same way that the Soviet Union broke up as a result of this? Or do you think that the future will look more like the recent past and that a lot of this talk is is just kind of happy thinking from people who don't like uh, the form that Russia has taken and find it too difficult to to accept that this is the Russia we're going to have to live with for, for a very long time. Yeah, there were quite a number of options. I try to keep it short. I don't think... There might be some, there might be some other options as well. I'm yeah. just trying to understand. Now, obviously, after the last few years, everyone's very scared of making any exactly. predictions about anything. So and this is... 
Why I won't predict, and some people seem to be pretty sure in the West that this is all a bluff with the nuclear threat. And uh, I don't think it's just a bluff. They have these weapons. And I think Putin is as ruthless enough um, to use such a weapon. But I think the time is not ripe. I think not right now when he has all these mobilization efforts and, and all the other options, which he, I think, tries to um, exploit first. Um, that might be an option in the future, but uh, so I won't exclude that once and for all. Um, not now. Then, um, will Russia, what, what kind of country might Putin be replaced? I see him pretty safely in his chair right now. I don't see him threatened by neither Kadyrov or the, uh, the, the Chechen leader or the head of the Wagner mercenaries, uh, Prigozhin. I think these are all players he uses against the army or against other factions in the security apparatus to scare them and to keep all of them loyal. So I think he is still pretty much in control. This might change, but at this point in time, he's in control. Um, we have a war of attrition. And I think it's going to be a long, long fight. Um, not necessarily a year-long fight for many years to come in Ukraine, which is also possible, but it might also, we might also see some kind of uh, arrangement before the presidential elections in Russia in March 24, if Putin th thinks it would be better if I don't go for elections as a, as a war leader, but as somebody who has achieved something and, and achieved a truce as well. Because this war is not as popular as the conquest of Crimea, notably, and he knows that. Um, so, but in the long war of attrition with the West, I think Russia, life in Russia will gradually, gradually become miserable. Uh, the, the country um, will have less resources, financial resources, um, the country will be very much isolated from what Russians aspire to because they love to be in Berlin and in London and in Paris. And they like all that. And culturally, um, most Russians think they are part of Europe. Uh, but this kind of isolation uh, they have not experienced in their lifetime. And notably, I think this kind of isolation was not even in the Soviet Union when half of Europe was Uh, in the Warsaw Pact, uh, basically accessible for Russians. And they could uh, travel to Berlin and to Sofia and to Bucharest, which they cannot uh, if, if visa regulations become stiffer and, 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 and stronger, as I think they will be. So this isolated Russia in a, in a steady decay, this is, I think, what we face. I think I don't believe there will be any major shift in power Uh, that opposition forces take over. No, they are all pretty much uh, disempowered. And, and with Navalny, the last charismatic person, was taken out of the picture. Um, but there might be, if Putin will be some sometime, if Putin goes away, then we will see, I think, some 
some major shift and some major power struggle. But among those people, we see already today. So security services on the one hand, the uh, the big guard, the Russian guard, um, on the other hand, the army, people like Prigozhin Kadyrov, they will be all then uh, jockeying for power. And that might be a pretty nasty and, and maybe also bloody struggle. Okay, well, we're coming up to the end of the time that we have. Um, so what I would like to do is move to the final thing we have to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. It's very easy for me to recommend a book in this section, which is Michelle's book. We'll put up a link to uh, that on our website. But Michel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, on my bookshelf at the moment um, are two Russian and one Ukrainian writer. Um, the, the Russian, the, the first Russian is Dmitry Glukhovsky, who has written a wonderful book, which is called uh, Stories from Home. And it gives you a brilliant insight into Russian daily life today, into the thinking of, of Russians and, and why actually this campaign, this war is acceptable to most of them and uh, wonderfully written and, and quite amusing also. Um, and of course, depressing at the same time. Um, then there is, and, and this is rather a reminder, the book came out more than 10 years ago, uh, but it still fits. It's actually a dystopia of, of Russia. It's Vladimir Sarokin's um, Aprichnik, uh, which is a book on uh, a Russian uh, Russian guards uh, who have taken over the country. And it's basically um, the security service he is, he's uh, talking about who have turned Russia to the east, the final pivot to the east, and turned it into a kind of subcolony of China. And every everything they are using is Chinese, and they drive in Chinese cars and, and, and so on. And it is amazing because uh, he has written that in, in, in the late, in, in 2008, I think, and 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 still so much true about Russia today. You learn a lot there about uh, the, the present and future of Russia. And the last is um, Serhii Plochi's uh, book, uh, The Frontline, uh, which is a book about uh, Ukraine's history. It's essays about Ukraine's history, about Ukraine's uh, coming of age as a nation state, a very impressive story uh, by by this brilliant historian uh, Plochi. I like him a lot. He has also written brilliant stuff about the breakup of the Soviet Union. And but but this uh, this latest uh, book of his, I uh, recommend very much. Great. So we'll put links up to all these publications on our website at ecfr.eu and in the show notes. Um, and if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do head to whatever platform you use to listen to this episode on and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it will help bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Michel Tuman and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. 
The researcher of this podcast was Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel. Thank you.